0: Hey everybody, welcome to the Full Frame Podcast. Uh, Just uh, just, uh, stop and take it from the top. Okay, okay, you ready? Hey guys, welcome to the Full Frame Podcast. This week I sat down with Christina Rea, who is not only head of education at Seed and Spark, but also a very accomplished filmmaker and uh, very involved in the New York film scene. We talked all about advice for young filmmakers, her breaking into the New York film scene, as well as... Uh, crowdfunding, all sorts of great stuff, and she has a lot of great insight into that. So, give it a listen. Hi, Christine. Thanks for joining me today.
1: Hi. Thanks for having me.
0: Um, so, uh, tell me, um, you have a laundry list of accolades. I would love to know uh, how you started building yourself as a filmmaker. So, so tell me, where, where are you from, and then uh, how you got into how you got into film?
1: Sure. Um, so, I'm from. Long Beach, New York, mostly. Uh, I grew up, we moved around a lot before I was five, um, and so I lived in a lot of different places on Long Island, but eventually settled into Long Beach and lived there through high school. Um, it was me, my mom, and my brother, and I moved to Queens um, pretty much out of high school to go to college. I went to Hunter in Manhattan. Cool. Um, and yeah, I, my mom is from Trinidad, and so she moved to Queens when she was 14, And that was always sort of like a secondary home. And now I still live here, you know?
0: Cool. And so does Hunter have a film program that you got into?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, I had originally growing up, wanted to go to NYU because in my mind that was like where you go if you want to be a filmmaker. Sure. That's all I really knew. I didn't, you know, I grew up with uh, sort of working class family and so there wasn't real access to the industry but that was the thing I knew from just like reading articles and a little bit of internet googling. Googling Google didn't exist then I don't know what it was probably like ask Jeeves or something <laughs> um, but uh, that's sort of how I learned about you know going to NYU and and then in high school I realized that that wasn't going to happen because it was so expensive mm. uh, and you know I grew up with a single mom and she worked full time job and then, you know, multiple part time jobs. And so that wasn't a reality for me. And then I decided to take a year off after high school, actually, and just kind of decide like, OK, well, what does it mean to be a filmmaker outside of the school you go to? Mm-hmm. And I tried like helping out on sets. You know, I used, I guess, what was Craigslist probably at that time. I didn't know of anything else. Um, and I sh- would show up and, you know, learn from people and saw how terribly things can be done. Mm-hmm. Um, and but I also realized that I didn't really have like a a team. I didn't have any collaborators. I didn't you know, no one in my high school was really pursuing film, so that wasn't there wasn't anyone that could really work with me. So I was like, I need school, I need to go to school. Mm-hmm. So then I was like, Well, you know, the CUNY schools have some film programs, let me see. Where I want to go. So I applied to a few of them and got into all of them that had film programs. So, like Brooklyn and um, City College, they all have them. And I guess I wanted, growing up as a kid on Long Island, I wanted to be in Manhattan because, like, that felt, you know, that's like New York City. Um, and so I went to Hunter for that reason. And it was, you know, it was a great school. I, lo- I love that I ended up sort of with like my people, it was a lot of working class people, a lot of people who had like the dream that I had, but didn't have the access that I think a lot of people who go to like the more traditional film schools have, Mm. um, not that all of them do, but I think even just like working my friends that have gone to, you know, NYU and UCLA, they have had more connections than I ever did um, growing up. And so it was nice to like meet people who had a similar background and a similar dream um, and that's where I really found my main collaborators who I still collaborate with now, like 10 years later.
0: Yeah. I think film school for, for myself and for the other host, the other Zach, um, was the same thing. It's where I met him. It's where I met most of the people I write with. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, where what, did you go? I went to Georgia Mason university, okay, cool. um, which was a, um, it was kind of in its infancy of a film. It was kind of, it's like Film and TV, film and video production. Mm-hmm. So there's actually absolutely no film involved. Right. It was just digital at that point. Um, anyways, this is not an interview about <laughs> me. Um, but no, but uh, I think like like you said, like you meet your people there. Mm-hmm. The people that you're going to be with at 4 a.m. when you're, you know, really scratching your head or really upset or tired. And those are the people that will support you. Yeah. So, um what were some big lessons you learned at Hunter or something that maybe professors or other um, peers of yours imparted to you?
1: Well, you know, I guess just for one thing, the the fact that everyone has like a role to fill and that every role matters. Um, and that's something that I – because if you – I don't know what your pro- program was like, but we all had to work the positions. Like you couldn't just – come into the undergrad program and be like, I'm going to be a director and only direct. Like you had to do all of the positions and learn them and know As them. As film
0: school shit. Yeah, be, right.
1: Yeah. I agree. Um, and so, I, I had like had respect for the people who do the things that I have no interest in doing mm-hmm. like w- on a set um, and how important those roles are especially because I was so bad at some of them. Um, like we did have to shoot in, on film and I could not, I could not, you know, put the film into the camera to save my life like yeah. that's really hard to do
0: right um, it's very technical yeah yeah
1: and and just certain things like that are so not my skill set um and so that was that was really great to learn and to really understand like why I wanted to be a director and why I feel like I'm well suited for it um but that we all matter you know and that we're sort of pieces of a puzzle hmm and we, nothing would be complete. Like, the film wouldn't be complete. The set wouldn't be complete without everyone. Um, but to be honest, like, the program itself wasn't spectacular. It was, a lot of, it was a lot of professors who worked at the other film schools but sort of had tenure at Hunter and were mm-hmm. kind of, like, phoning it in, I think. There were some that were really inspiring, but some that were, you know, just like, I, this is a paycheck and I, I am a filmmaker myself, mm-hmm. but I don't really love teaching. You know, I, I teach with my job with seed and spark, which we can talk about in a bit, but sure. I, I love teaching. Um, I didn't think that I would, when I was in school, I, I had no interest, but I feel like you can tell the difference between people who like it and people who are doing it just because that's what they could get.
0: Totally. Totally. Um, and, and, and sometimes it puts it on you to, to kind of go and take the initiative. With material and and colleges like that anyways, I think like you you get out what you put into it, but especially if you have um, people that are doing the thing and yeah. there's some sort of like maybe disconnect there mm-hmm. um, I
1: think also some of the professors were older and like traditional, sort of used to doing film in a traditional model and that's what they were teaching us especially when it comes to the business of film totally. and so I didn't learn anything about what it means to actually be a working filmmaker mm-hmm. um, and especially because this was in I was I graduated in 2012 so it was when like the sort of social media and crowdfunding in particular was just coming up and I learned all of that myself and really kind of carved out a way to build an audience and a career through that but no one taught me that no one was talking about that Mm -hmm. and no one was talking about like the importance of finding your audience it was a lot of like here's the traditional hollywood model and here's how you could get in and like it was a lot of just like move to la or find investors here in new york and make stuff and it's Mm -hmm. like okay these are not these are not actionable these Mm -hmm. are like I need to get chosen. I need to like try and find people to pick me and let me in. But they were, they're not actionable for someone like me who has no access. And so I had to really find my own path in that regard.
0: Yeah. So let's talk about how you found that path. I'm curious, like after you finished the program and um, you met some people who you were going to collaborate with, what was the first thing you did? Did you go, okay, now I have to find like a bread and butter job or was it I'm just going to take like a year and make something or what what would you do? So it was
1: a mix. Um, I, I'm kind of, I like to work a lot. I make a lot of content. If anyone you know follows me, I make a lot of shorts and mm-hmm. some of them are just sort of like, I'm going to try something and it may totally fail. Um, but I, I like to experiment and just make stuff. Um, and also just that's always been my approach to filmmaking, even when I was in school. And so I was always making a short like over the summer, while you know we had our class projects while in school i was always making some other short that was my own thing and so in 2011 i decided to try crowdfunding for a short i was a junior in college um
0: and this was like through a kickstarter or? yeah it was through kickstarter Just like the big one, first one yeah the
1: first one i think kickstarter i don't think it was really on anyone's radar until 2010 mm-hmm. i believe they started in like 2008 or 2009 but no one knew what it was um and then in 2011 i noticed a couple of my classmates or really just one in particular tried it and failed and I was just kind of like, how could you put that up and just let it fail? Like, there, you you did all of this work to get it going mm-hmm. and I had been watching other people that had been raising, you know, a significant amount of money um, and I was like, this is something, you know, that you can find people who want to see the thing that you want to make and they can participate in that. They can help you make it and so, it felt like, okay, it's work. It's obviously work because he just put it up and nothing happened but, it can work for you if mm-hmm. you do the work. And so I gave it a shot. I raised, my goal was $1,000. I raised 1200 It was like the hardest thing I'd ever done in my life. Totally. Um, anyone who's crowdfunded, you know, knows like that's, it's a lot of work, especially at that time because I had to explain to people what it even was. Mm-hmm. They didn't know what crowdfunding was. And I didn't really have an audience yet, but that experience made me realize that I could find an audience because people on social media, on Twitter in particular, were like, oh, this is a really cool idea. I want to be part of it. Um, And so I started to build an audience through that. It wasn't a very good short, um, but it was finished. I delivered. Yeah.
0: And proved you could crowdfund and make it a thing. Right. And
1: so it gave me confidence and maybe like too much confidence because a year (laughs) later I decided to make a feature. Uh, I was a senior in college um, and I had just been in a class where I had a professor who kind of sort of naively was like oh you can make a horror film these days with like 10 grand if you just go into the woods with some friends and yeah like theoretically sure will it be you know a good horror movie that's up to debate Mm -hmm. but uh i i ended up deciding to raise twelve thousand dollars on kickstarter because i had written this horror feature um script that a lot of my friends were like this is so fun you should do it And I was like, okay, I'm going to do it because everyone's like, you should do it. And I just had this professor tell me that like, that's a doable thing on 10 grand. And so I raised $12,000, um, even though I needed 15, but I was like, you know, I only raised 1200 bucks last time. I haven't really built like this huge following. I don't know how
0: A zero to that. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And so I was like, I I can try for 12 grand and then maybe like get a credit card and fill in the other three or whatever.
0: And was that all Kickstarter? Yeah. Wow.
1: Um, So I raised it on Kickstarter and that was like, we raised that a good six months before we went into production. I cast the movie like almost a year in advance because I, for one thing, the the characters are supposed to be a group of friends, Mm -hmm. college friends. And so I wanted all the actors to actually bond and like feel like friends. So I wanted to cast them early, Um, but also I wanted to get them committed to the project so that they would support the crowdfunding campaign like share with their friends and family and stuff Mm -hmm. um and so we raised 12 grand for that we ended up shooting it I graduated um in 2012 and we shot it in January of 2013 and so in that time I was doing like a lot of like babysitting and sort of freelancing and just trying to get as much money as I possibly could, um, just to like pay my rent because I was focusing on the movie. I was like, we shot it in Massachusetts. So I was driving up to Massachusetts, like trying to get our location secured and we got like a free gas station, but it was a lot of literally knocking on doors, which like my mom, she was the one who drove me upstate to Massachusetts in the Berkshires (laughs) multiple times Mm -hmm. to do that. Um, and so it was a very grassroots kind of, filmmaking experience where we raised the money through an audience and then like we made a feature ultimately by the end through post it ended up costing like 18 grand so I put the rest on credit cards um but yeah we got 12 grand through kickstarter
0: great so what was um what was some of the big takeaways from that experience uh once you were done shooting or once you were done um with post um you know it was your first film out of college so yeah what what did you take away from that
1: so much I mean it's a very flawed first feature I'm really proud of what we accomplished but I made so many mistakes as a director you know for one thing it was shot in January in the snow Um, and like I had never shot in those conditions before anyone who's trying to make a film in extreme weather conditions like go shoot in those weather conditions before you try to do it yourself you know I didn't I had done a lot of research and I talked to people who had shot in those conditions, but I didn't... I had never done it myself. I wish I had worked on someone else's crew because then I would have known, like, okay, this is how I need to take care of my crew um, in these conditions. So, like, yeah, we shot the film in, you know, 11 production days. We were on location for 16 days. Uh, The end result is an 80-minute movie. It was really... You know, I didn't realize, like, how much... how much slower people are going to move when they're cold and how much more they're going to eat when they're cold. You know, like there are just things that I didn't properly budget for because I also produced the entire movie myself, Mm -hmm. um, which is crazy. I wrote, directed and produced it and had never made a feature before. And I was like fresh out of college. It was crazy. Um, the fact that we have an end product is
0: a miracle. Yeah, (laughs) totally.
1: Yeah. Um, but you know, there were ultimately I learned how to be a better, better sort of, leader, I guess, Uh, because I, I made mistakes and had to eat that and like had to, I'm so grateful for the people who worked with me again after it, because, you know, like I tried to, I tried to take care of people on set, but we were working long hours and my mom cooks for all my shoots, so the food is always amazing, I can at least <laughs> say. Like no one just eats pizza on my sets. They that's get why like everyone sticks around. That's right, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, that's the thing. People don't they don't love me, they love my mom's <laughs> cooking. That's really what it is. But uh, but yeah, they there were definitely just like the the grueling aspect of making that movie was hard. Um and there were certain things like when snow, when it, when the what the um, temperature drops, snow freezes and gets crunchy, and like your sound is going to be shit. And so th- there are things that I just didn't know or think about um, until I was in it, and then had to sort of fix it and post and like deal with that. So that film was in post for like a year and a half mm-hmm. because also my sound editor, who really did everything, like he did foley and all of that, um, he was working on it around like how much higher paying got jobs. And so, and also I, because I'm a crazy person, shot a web series three months after wrapping production. So Goodness. my, <laughs> so I was like sort of editing summit, my feature, but also like in production on my web series and kind of splitting my focus. So yeah, it took a long time to get it finished, but I did actually write a blog series on my, um, on my blog, my congested cat production company blog, Mm -hmm. about like things I learned, mistakes I made, things I would have done differently. And so like I I, it's probably poorly written. I mean it was like six years ago, but um if anyone is listening, it's something maybe to read. Gonna get the links to those
0: (laughs) and share. That's great. Um goodness that it is an endeavor to take on a film but to do it as both or as all those roles too mm-hmm. um did you did you say you edited it too or are you just like in the room while it was being cut?
1: I was in the room and it really Matt Gershwitz, who is my editor who's my main editor on most of what I work on um he he is a great editor and I like that he's also my a d mm-hmm. so he's like on set and knows it's a i think it's a it's sort of he likes being both because he knows what we went through mm-hmm. and he knows like what's best and what's usable yeah. and he also just like was there with me when I was making comments to the script supervisor when I was like I like that I don't
0: like that you know totally. and
1: so he's he's very in the know um
0: I reacted because I've done that before mm-hmm. I, those are kind of my two specialty roles okay I like to be on set in AD um to kind of be in the th- in the thick of that but also I, I love cutting mm-hmm. and I've recently done both on the same project. And <laughs> I think uh, I'll never do it again okay, because yeah. they're so naturally at odds with one another. Sure. To me. If I'm telling you, look, you, you need to lose this or that shot, you know, later today and then we lose it. I'm kicking myself in the edit six weeks later where mm-hmm. I'm just like, why? Why? Why did I do that?
1: Sure. What, what I like about that, though, for Matt, is that he is at least thinking about the edits. So when he tells me we need to lose something, I trust that he feels like he can make it happen Mm -hmm. without that, you know, in the edit. So he's not just, like, telling me that as the AD and then the editor's going to be pissed off later. Or he can only blame himself, at least if that's the case. Exactly. But, like, I I trust him more because he knows the edit that we have in mind. Totally. So he can, like, really say, Christina, you need to cut this. It's not going to happen. And we can make it work without it. Um, And that's something definitely that experience taught me was, like, relying on, him and also just everyone to get their jobs done and like mm. I don't have to be in sort of the like really finite details of every department and I shouldn't be you know yeah. um, but I had sort of been coming out of doing a lot like wearing a lot of hats myself like even you know when I would do little shorts I was shooting it and editing it and doing everything yeah. on my By own necessity. yeah exactly yeah. but this was sort of like okay I can't I physically can't. I have five actors I need to be you know directing and mm-hmm. I'm also producing this thing where we have like you know crazy weather and just there was a lot like we built our own D- DIY process trailer and that ended up getting stuck in the snow at one point so there was just like a lot of crazy things that I learned and sort of my takeaway is I'm never going to shoot in the snow again, at least not <laughs> without a budget, like a real budget. <laughs> sure.
0: And people to delegate. To.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: Yeah. Um, well, um, so, so what was, um, I, I mean, I know you said you worked on a web series mm-hmm. next and it seems like you have just like short after short after short yeah. that you worked on over the next six years, mm-hmm. um, seven years. Um, but, uh, what, um, what brought you to um, Seed&Spark? After the, How like how soon after your first feature was that? And then um, how has it enabled you and developed your sense of crowdfunding, fighting an audience?
1: Yeah, so... Um, that may you, be a big question, I'm sorry. Yeah, no, no. Uh, well, you had asked also about just, like, paying the bills earlier. Um, yes. And so right out of school, pretty much after wrapping production of... Um, summit I needed a job obviously because now I had a bunch of credit card debt (laughs) and I had been barely paying my rent I lived you know in a three-bedroom apartment with two roommates at the time so Mm -hmm. we were sort of had and pretty low rent you know considering Um, and one of my friends actually he still lives in that apartment and that landlord is amazing he's only in like seven years has only raised the rent I think like two (laughs) hundred dollars yeah
0: Meanwhile, the past two years for everybody else. Yeah. <laughs> um. Um. But anyway. So, yes.
1: So I I needed a job. Um. And in one of my freelance jobs that I had gotten from graduating between graduating and summit shooting summit was uh this new nonprofit that popped up called it was sort of run by the Patton Veterans Project and it was called I was There Films and that was. The uh, grandson of, of General Patton, he is not uh, um, in the military. He's a filmmaker. And he wanted to sort of, like, continue his family legacy by servicing veterans. Um, and so he, was, he had created a program that was essentially art therapy using filmmaking for veterans struggling with PTSD. And he was doing, like, an experimental first workshop. And they were looking specifically for um, a woman instructor because they didn't have any and uh, sorry my cat no it's okay <laughs> uh-huh. can get Okay, Th- so they were looking for a woman instructor because they didn't have any um, and someone who, the sort of assistant for him posted in a Facebook group for women horror filmmakers which I was part of because I had just made this horror movie or um, I was about <clears throat> to make this horror movie and also I had made a sh- at least one short that was a horror film um, and So I was like, oh, this is a cool thing to try. And at the time I had no interest in teaching and it was really like the program was essentially uh, you're on location for four days and then you're traveling on either end. So it was a six day commitment. And you would spend the first day kind of talking to them about visual storytelling and trying to make them like understand what that means, how you can express yourself visually. And so we, we would show them a lot of short films. And then the second day would be like, sort of a bit of a group therapy where people talk about things that maybe they're thinking about and sort of whatever they're open to talking about or anything that that they keep replaying um, in their minds. And then we would sort of pair them up based on similar kind of themes that they had talked about mm. and then the third day we would help them shoot something and then the fourth day we would edit for them and then by the end of that fourth day they would have a short film and we would have a screening for their friends for their families or like whoever they were essentially trying to communicate with
0: how many um sorry i to interrupt you yeah how many uh how many people were in that that group and so then how many instructors were there
1: so it was a th- it was three instructors Kay. um And, and Ben, Ben Patton, um, that was traditionally how it was. And there were usually like 15, um, 15 to 20 veterans that would, that were in it. Uh, It was also sometimes we would do it at the time because it was in 2012 for the first one that was on like an actual military base in the warrior transition unit because it was like when a lot of, um, soldiers were being transitioned out Mm -hmm. because of their PTSD or because of an injury. Um, and so that was an interesting freelance gig that I had and, I, it was an, it was like a whole new world for me because I had, I have no real exposure to the military and like definitely had some preconceived notions and I was sort of thrust into this world and started to realize that my interest in filmmaking and storytelling and particularly in like underrepresented voices really worked well with what this was, was like helping people tell their stories. And so, um, after shooting Summit, they were kind of like, we're, we've got funding and we're going to be doing this like at least once a month. It, sometimes it was twice a month. So that became my main way of paying my bills for a good two and a half years. Wow. Um, it started to slow down around 2015 as funding was sort of running low. and But it was also when I was looking to leave because at that point I had been doing it. At least one week out of every month and it was really rewarding work but it was also really um, stressful and like triggering work and as Mm. as the only woman instructor for a good year um, I eventually really pushed to get more women hired but for a good year it was just me and I was always the one that got paired with Women veterans who, unfortunately, in addition to having combat trauma, had sexual assault trauma. And so it was just like one week out of every month listening to someone tell these horrific stories about um, what had happened to them. And often it was like uh, a superior officer or their doctor who had assaulted them. And so I was just like, I can't really do this anymore for my own mental health. Um, And at that time... I had also been making a lot of stuff. I had been getting invited to speak on panels um, because I had crowdfunded and had crowdfunded a feature, which was sort of like still kind of new at that point. um, And that I was kind of like making my own work through that without any other, you know, funds. Um, And so in 2013, I, while this was all happening, I met Emily Best, the CEO of Seed&Spark. She spoke at an event. Seed&Spark was like six months old at that point. Mm -hmm. And... I found her really inspiring. I loved that she was talking about the things that I had been doing, but with this approach to audience building, like this this perspective that I felt I had and wasn't really the Kickstarter way. Um, Kickstarter was great, but having having had run two campaigns at that point, there wasn't really a way to like connect those two audiences on the platform. Mm-hmm. And Seed&Spark was kind of built for that. And so I spoke to her and, and we kind of stayed in touch on social and she really convinced me to switch platforms for my third crowdfunding campaign, which was in 2014. I raised for two shorts. Um, And I had a positive experience with the platform, so I sort of became an advocate. Like on social media, I would talk about why I preferred Seed&Spark, and and I wrote a blog post for them, and and just generally was like recommending them to people. And I had been getting hired a little bit by people to like consult for them, or at least to kind of... I, I have... I have, I didn't really want to run anyone's campaign and Mm -hmm. it's, it's hard to also like charge filmmakers when they don't have any money. So that may always made me a little bit uncomfortable, Mm -hmm. but I was sort of like in that world, a little bit of crowdfunding consultation. And so in 20 late, late 2015, I was like deciding to leave. I was there films. Um, and then needing a way to make money. Uh, but I had all this teaching experience now and, and very sort of unique experience. And, uh, Erica Anderson, who was the head of crowdfunding at that point, she lived in New York and she was like, Hey, we are looking for teachers to start. Um, she's not with the company anymore, but at the point at that time she, she was a co-founder. Um, and she was like, we're looking for instructors to start doing our crowdfunding workshops in New York. Um, because I can not do them all and we'd really like to expand. And I was like, I'm totally interested. And so, in early 2016, I started doing that, and by March, I had joined the team not only doing that, but then helping people launch campaigns as sort of a feedback crowdfunding specialist. And now I'm head of education. I've been in the company for over three years.
0: Wow. Um, well, it's a lot to unpack. Yeah. But <laughs> I, I also asked a giant question, so I deserve this. But um, no, I there's so many things I want to talk about. Um, I think, um, first of all, Seed&Spark, uh is offering i i love that it is offering um a way to pair um your or camp multiple campaigns Mm -hmm. with a single audience um i think that that's unique and compared to something like indiegogo or kickstarter um it just gives them that I guess a unique filmmaking edge. Mm-hmm. Um, so can you talk about was that was something that had already been implemented or did you help bolster that a little bit?
1: Um, it had definitely been implemented because of the sort of follower feature mm-hmm. that I think I think the other platforms maybe have adopted at this point. But it was new and original to Seed&Spark where people could follow your campaign. Um, even if they hadn't contributed. So they would get your updates. And that follow of your campaign triggered their follow of your profile. Mm-hmm. So it allowed then people to know that you had launched a campaign, a new campaign, like whether it was for the same project or a new project and the option to follow that one as well. Mm-hmm. And what later came as like part of my um, my existence within the crowdfunding department, which was really... Jerry Maravilla, who is the current head of crowdfunding, um, we worked a lot to sort of implement a lot of things because we were both users of the platform who had crowdfunded. We started as filmmakers who crowdfunded on the platform and noticed some like things we would like to be implemented and sort of pushed for that. And um, one of those things was definitely like the ability to send out an update either as the project or as yourself and sort of to all of your followers versus individual project followers. And so we really, we have really been working to kind of connect that more. Like, can make those connections between campaigns. Um, but that was always something that I found appealing. Like you can raise for one stage of a project and then come back to that exact same campaign page and launch a new goal amount and you keep your followers mm-hmm. and you and you keep your updates and sort of all the things you had already built for that film. And so those were things that were really appealing to me and it clearly was coming from, you know, the idea of building an audience and not losing that audience, mm-hmm. but really taking them with you to the next thing.
0: Well, and because so often um, we will... I mean, even if you have a strict budget and you keep to it, things happen I mm-hmm. mean, where you're going to need to raise another two grand, three grand, even if it's just something small like that. Um, yeah. And, uh, and keeping the audience and people like, Oh, well I, I want, I'm invested already. Like why not? You know, that's great. How did that enable you as a filmmaker? Did you then um, after you became involved with Seed and Spark did you find yourself um, then connected to other people in a certain way, or did you say, like? or um, I guess what I'm trying to ask is, like, um, how has Seed&Spark helped you grow as a filmmaker?
1: I mean, it's, it's really helped me grow. For one thing, just seeing what other people are working on, and it's interesting giving feedback because you're... On the other side of it, as a filmmaker, you have to be so vulnerable, like you're putting your Definitely. materials out there and accepting someone's sort of critique, um, and it's it's always coming from a helpful place, and we at Seed and Spark make it a point not to, we're not critiquing your story or your filmmaking ability, it's really like the effectiveness of your pitch and and just what you're putting out there, but seeing how other people are approaching their own careers and how they're, like, selling what they're working on and their whys, like, why they want to make something and why it matters. Um, That has really helped me, you know, doing that. I don't do feedback anymore as head of education. I've moved into really the sort of overseeing of the educational department and program, and I do with most of the teaching myself. Um, But I did that for, like, I guess, two years. And so the, the feedback for two years. And so that really helped me. And then also just working for a company that is kind of by creators for creators where I work full time. So it has definitely given me financial stability to um, make, you know, not like struggle to pay my bills. And so I can kind of, you know, I paid off my credit cards for one thing. Like, that's awesome. Mm-hmm. But uh, <laughs> but I um, I have the ability to like, Put in my own money to filmmaking if that's what I want to do. But also the company is really understanding of production needs. And so so the company, they understand like production needs. So if I am shooting a short and I need a couple of days off, they're really great about that. Um, when I shot my feature, which was crowdfunded in 2017 after I had joined the team, um, I needed. I shot it over. That film was shot over 12 days, but only on weekends. So we would shoot Friday through Sunday for four consecutive weeks. And so I I took off the like, Thursday and Monday that bookended that mm-hmm. um, for four weeks to really be able to focus on the production. And seed spark was totally on board for that because ultimately they want us to be doers of what we teach. And mm-hmm. so that's kind of a mandate of the company is like you have to continue pursuing your own career, your own filmmaking career if you're going to join the team because we have to stay relevant. And so like I need to really have my thumb on the pulse of what's happening you know as an independent filmmaker and know the struggles because i'm doing it and then i can speak to that and how we're solving for that in the workshops that we teach
0: mm-hmm. that's great um and it's interesting now with with other things like um patreon and mm-hmm. things like that how you can really just like use these platforms to grow your audience and just become a filmmaker for that audience i think when when you came to talk to film shop that really stuck with me You had mentioned um, basically that, like, I think you'd you'd said something along the lines of like you don't need to be paired with a studio or you don't need to get wide distribution to be a working filmmaker full time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Could you talk a little bit about that?
1: Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think it's. I can't say that I've reached sustainability, you know, but I'm definitely working towards it, and I think that we as filmmakers are conditioned to think of like success as Hollywood and as these big budgeted movies but that is sort of like the kind of one percent you know and there are so many of us that have stories to tell and there's still so much bias that exists within that that larger part of the industry and so what I believe and what I, what I think sort of Seed&Spark believes is that it's really about finding your pocket of people that mm-hmm. exist that really passionately want to see the stories that you want to tell and finding a way to include them and distribute directly to them. And so that's sort of what I've, you know, like my first feature is on um, Vimeo On Demand and Amazon Prime and uh, it's been on for like, three years at this point. Um, and I, what's have the name of it real quick? Summit. Summit. It's the horror film. Yeah. Your, okay, great. Uh, I've made Just back people want to look. Yeah. I've made, if you watch it, you know, it's, it's again, very flawed, but, um, <laughs> I, I've made back the money I put into that, you know? And so I've made not the entire budget back, but, definitely all the personal money I put into it and some of the money that we raised, you know, through crowdfunding. And so like, that's a really, that's not, you know, yes, it's a $18,000 movie, but a lot of filmmakers can't say that, you know, that have worked in these much bigger budgets. And so I'm, I'm trying to really create this funnel of like the revenue I make on one project can fund the next one Mm -hmm. so that I'm at least not putting my own money into it, into these smaller projects. And then I crowdfund, you know, like the bigger things so that my audience that really wants it can show that they want it by essentially like pre-ordering their copy of it or having some sort of participation on a bigger level because of what I'm offering them. Um, and so that's sort of, that for me, that's like, you can have a career without having to have this, this much larger um, access. And then, you know, Like I talk to filmmakers all the time. My number one question when I meet a filmmaker that's like gotten into Sundance or has made multiple features and have, has gotten into these top tier festivals. I'm like, are you making a living off of directing? And the answer is always no, Mm -hmm. unless they're working in commercials. Like that's sort of the only, but even then it's like, you're not directing your own stuff. I think that's a myth that people still buy into that. Like you you get into Sundance and then you've like made it and now you're just getting hired to direct like Mm -hmm. that sort of, and for the most part that's not the case. Usually those filmmakers have they're producing or they're editing their editors by trade or like they have some sort of other skill that they're utilizing more often than not their teachers. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I try to think of like different streams of revenue and like I, for me, I have sustainability because I've used a skill that started out as just a way for me to make my own content and evolved into like an expertise in something that not a lot of people understood or were experts in. And now I have a career in that and I'm also making my own content and it all sort of is like a cycle that feeds you know, itself. Um, and so I think that filmmakers need to like think about their careers in that way of like having multiple revenue sources and just finding a way to get their content made and seen. Um, using these like different and newer forms and methods of reaching people and, and engaging people and um, empowering people to participate. I don't know if that really answered your question.
0: No, absolutely. It's exactly what I wanted to talk about. Okay. Um, what are some of the ways that you're finding, uh, uh, I understand Seed&Spark wants to remain like, as like a, one of the top like um, crowdfunding uh destinations Mm -hmm. so you don't have to talk to me about anything that you guys are working on that you don't want people to know about yet but what are some of the things that you guys are doing um or that are coming about that are brand new for for crowdfunding for um filmmakers
1: sure so For one thing, you know, we are a streaming platform. So there is this kind of like full circle option Mm -hmm. for you. If you, it's not guaranteed. It is sort of, we have an acquisitions team, but ultimately trying to be like the alternative to Amazon Prime that, you know, pays you four cents per hour watched. We pay you per minute watched. And so I can't say that it's going to be like a game changer. I, I don't, I think there are too many streaming platforms, personally. um, And more and more every yeah month. (laughs) Yeah, and as a subscriber myself, like I just can't afford to subscribe to so many. Right. Um, But what's cool about Seed and Spark is that it is like a pay what you can model. It starts at two dollars, and you can subscribe at any time. And so theoretically, like when you can afford it, you can subscribe, watch some content, support some filmmakers, and then unsubscribe for a while and Mm -hmm. always come back. Um, That's like I think that's a cool thing, and that you're watching benefits directly benefits the filmmakers you know the more you watch the more they make um and so that's cool and ultimately i i look at it as like another opportunity for you to sort of self-distribute even though you it is sort of curated you have to get selected by the acquisitions team but it is a way to sort of self-distribute and get your audience to push your audience to watch and then make money off of those views and also support other artists by telling them, like, hey, if you liked my movie, this is some other stuff in the cinema that you can watch that's similar or that I'm a fan of or whatever it is. But so that's one thing. Um, But the other thing that we do on the crowdfunding side is like crowdfunding rallies. I don't know if you know about our crowdfunding Mm -hmm. rallies. So it's pretty new. No other platform does it. Um, It started in 2017 when we did a rally, It's sort of a term that we've created, but basically it's like a contest where people raise their crowdfunding as they normally would, Um, you know, you're raising funds for your project and for the same window of time generally, but you're also competing for some larger grand prize that comes from a partner.
0: Oh, right, so like Hometown Heroes. Exactly. Days. Okay, yeah, I so didn't it, know it was called a rally. Yes, that's cool, I like yeah. that.
1: So we call it a rally. So for instance, the Hometown Heroes rally is with the Duplass brothers. That's yeah. for feature films shot in a filmmaker's hometown, either you know where they grew up or where they currently live. Um, and you basically filmmakers rate, they crowdfund for the same window of time, the same 30 days. And there are certain minimums you have to hit, like for the first two years that we've done it at this, it was a cash minimum of 7,500 bucks and you had to hit a certain follower count. And then that got you to the finals. And then from there, the Duplass brothers would pick up to five campaigns to give in 2017, it was 25 grand In 2018 it was 50 grand. Um, and then executive producership executive producership. So uh, that is one version of it. We have done. We tend to do them now every quarter with a different partner and a different theme and a different grand prize. So last year, one of my favorite ones that we did that was like a really big educational effort um, for us was the Keep It Colorful rally. That was for filmmakers of color that were working on pilots or series. Um, and that was With uh, Color Farm Media, which is Erica Alexander's company, which um, if you watched Living Single, she played Max on Living Single. I was a huge fan. So it was really exciting for me. Um, And we went to like we went to cities where there are filmmakers of color that are maybe not getting as much industry support. And so that was a really cool um, initiative on our in our educational department to like reach these filmmakers who maybe had never had access to us before because they weren't really getting into these festivals that we were teaching at and like we weren't making as many stops in their cities just because we weren't getting invited to buy like festivals or schools um and so that was really great and that that's one of my favorites i hope we do it again this year Mm -hmm. um and then we're probably going to do hometown heroes or something with the duplass brothers for sure they're definitely partners of ours that that Like, it's a really great, mutually beneficial relationship. And so that's something that we try to do that marries, like, our ideology of not waiting to be picked. You know, just, like, doing it, finding your audience, making your content with the filmmaker, you know, aspiration of, like breaking into the larger industry so we kind of marry those two things so that you know no one really loses as long as you hit your goal if you do the work you'll make your funds you'll make you'll have a successful campaign and you'll be on the road towards making your thing Mm -hmm. but it also has this potential for a big win at the end of it Um, and then other stuff like we are working on some new things that I'm not really allowed to talk about (laughs) Um, but I will say that what we're really concerned with as a company at the moment is creating conversations and trying to get people in rooms to really have like communal experiences of content in a way that I think we're lacking right now. Hmm. Um, And so that's something we're working on doing more of and and we'll be making announcements soon.
0: Very cool. I'm looking forward to that. Um, Well, shifting gears a little bit, um, I would like to talk to you about, um, about a donkey. Sure. Yeah. That was your second feature, including mm-hmm. Summit? Yeah. Okay, so um, what were some of the things that uh, you took from not only Summit, but from the shorts that took place in between into making About a Donkey? Yeah.
1: So, so, and
0: it is a comedy, not a horror. Yeah,
1: so my work in general, I tend to bounce between comedy and horror. Or, Amazing. Or I mix the two. So, like, if you watch my shorts, they tend to be horror comedies or...
0: Um, it's validating a little bit because and and just as a a quick tangent um i i love horror and i want to pick your brain about horror Mm -hmm. but also um recently i've been kind of like i have a bunch of like big budget horror ideas but i have a bunch of like low budget comedy ideas Mm -hmm. and i don't know that i ever could mix the two Mm -hmm. so it's validating to hear that other people are kind of doing the same thing where they're finding or you yourself you're finding Mm -hmm. like um, are you just, like, following that fun, like, whatever kind of comes up?
1: Yeah, you know, so I grew up watching horror movies. I loved horror as a cool. kid. I was obsessed with it. And I also watched a lot of sitcoms, like, classic sitcoms. My mom my mom and I, um, we watched, or my mom, my brother, and I would always watch the Twilight Zone marathon, like, Amazing. you know, Fourth of July and New Year's Eve. But then my mom and I also watched sitcoms together. Um, and so that just sort of informed the way that I think of storytelling for Mm -hmm. sure uh and then I for me I think I process stuff through through like an offbeat lens you know and so when I'm struggling with something or I'm frustrated with something or if I've gone through like anything traumatic I always kind of find like the dark humor in that or I just like think of a way to process it metaphorically and sort of comedy uh, or horror serves that and also comedy does as well um and and so for me it makes sense to mix them because they're both about beats you know they're both about like hitting whether it's about building tension or about setting up a Mm punchline it's about beats um interesting and then also i guess because i care about a lot of social issues and like representation in my work i find that horror allows you to like heighten things so that people will go along with your, I guess like the moral of your story or, you know, the point you're trying to make Mm -hmm. if, um, if it feels not real, like if it feels like, Oh, this isn't about that issue. It's about this like imaginary thing, but really what I'm talking about is that issue. So I find like, that's a way to kind of get people to watch content and maybe, consume like the subtext without being so in your face and then comedy I think is like unifying in a way if you can make people laugh together you can you can get them to open up you can get them to talk about something and so that's why I just really like to bounce between them um and and also just for me I drama is great um but I don't I just sort of find myself bored with it and making it and like, sure. you know, and like I love, I will, we, sc- I run IndieWorks, which is a monthly screening series. I would say, you know, most of the films we award at our end of your best of fest are dramas because they're right. like so brilliant and hard to do, especially to when it comes to like balancing, you know, being, grounded in reality versus like melodrama. And, and so it is very hard, but it's not for me. For me, I like the sort of heightened world of, of beats and, and, you know, um, you know, like gore and making people uncomfortable. I love that.
0: Yeah. Um, um but sorry. So what did going you back, I, I originally, yeah, I know. I'm sorry. I interrupted. No, it was me. Yeah, I went on tangent. Um, but, uh, yeah. What, what were some of the things, um, taking from, oh, yes. uh, summit to about a donkey? and the shorts in between?
1: So the biggest thing, the biggest shift between Summit and About a Donkey was that I wanted to pay everyone. And I spent, I should say, About a Donkey is written by Kelsey Rauber, who I met in college in a TV writing class. She almost exclusively does comedy through our friendship. She has become a fan of horror, but was traditionally very scared and would never watch any. Um, (laughs) Preaching
0: the word of the (laughs) horror. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Spreading that gospel.
1: (laughs) Yes, but uh, so generally she tends to write only comedy. Mm -hmm. And so the web series that I directed and co-created, it was co-created with her. She wrote it. Um, It's called Kelsey. It's sort of about her own breakup. Um, Mm -hmm. And so uh, that was our first collaboration. When we collaborate, we tend to do comedy because that's what she writes so when I do my own thing it is horror or it's horror comedy I have done a few I've done like one short or two shorts that were just purely comedy on my own but usually when I'm doing comedy it's with Kelsey so um she wrote the script when we were in school still and I was in pre-production for Summit I loved it I gave her some feedback on it and I was kind of like maybe we'll make this one day but like that's not my focus right now uh for a few years we spent time like revisiting it um we made our web series we built a really big f- online following for that um it, the current currently has nearly half a million views online um we released it in 2013 it was sort of when it was still like new to be releasing a web series so we had good timing at that point mm-hmm. and it, the main character is also a lesbian and at that point it was like there were there wasn't much representation in that, mm-hmm. um, in that world. And so we really got like consumed by all the lesbian sites and, and, um, blogs and they just like put us out there and really got us seen. Um, and, and I
0: think also, well, and this may just be my personal bias, but, um, I think if you're making a web series, that's not about struggling writers or actors, mm-hmm you have something already unique enough.
1: Yeah, totally. I, I, yeah, I can tell you, I get so tired of seeing those and I, <laughs> I relate to it, but it's Same. just, it's, yeah. there's just so many. There's a ton of them. Um, for Kelsey, we wanted to, Kelsey Rauber, the person, human being, she's a lesbian. And so the main character is obviously lesbian. But for me, I, um, obviously care about representation and I'm, we're best friends or like, she's one of my best friends. Um, and so, we imbued our own kind of friendship into it. But also I really wanted to make a film about a group of friends in New York city that looked like a group of friends in New York city. Totally. And so, uh, all the characters are different ethnic backgrounds, which is very true to my experience growing up. You know, my friends were always like very different because I, as like a multi-ethnic person was always attracted to like different people who feel, who felt othered as well. Mm -hmm. Um, and so that, that is very much like, Part of why I think the show got seen, too, is because there was that level of representation. But anyway, so we worked on that. We made two shorts and a pilot together in this time between Summit and About a Donkey. Um, And we we just kept talking about About a Donkey, but we were like, we want to pay people well. We want to do this with a budget. We need a donkey. Like, we need money. (laughs) (laughs) And so we kind of were like, this is, you know... $150,000 150000 hundred and fifty to $250,000 feature if we were to do it right. And we talked about, like, actors we would want. There's a ro- really wonderful role for the mother character, which I think women, you know, above 50 don't get very meaty, mm-hmm. um, fleshed-out roles often. So we thought about, like, who we could cast for that. And so we were talking about names. And eventually, 2016 rolled around, and we were kind of like, we're tired of talking about this thing. It feels really timely. It feels like, you know, now's the time to make it. We just want to do it. Um, we don't have access to investors. Like even though we had this great success of a web series, we still feel like there is no, there's still all these gatekeepers that have doors closed to us. So I was like, okay, well, we can raise 20 grand in a crowdfunding campaign because we did that in 2014. And I feel like we could do it again because we've delivered, we've made some new stuff. We built like some new audiences, members through releasing content. Um, and I, as a filmmaker who had pretty regularly bounced between horror and comedy, I had learned that I could get people to follow me between those two. And I could get someone who likes horror to like pay attention to my comedy. Not so easy the other way around. People who Mm -hmm. don't like horror generally don't like horror, but I found that they like my horror because like usually, as I said, it's usually funny. It's usually like, I like to play with camp. There's usually some sort of like feminist, you know, undertone to it. Mm -hmm. Um, And so That was like, that's something I had learned and had known. So I said, okay, we can raise 20 grand. Can we make this film on 20 grand? So then he was like, well, how can we do that? I had learned from making Kelsey where we didn't shoot it. We shot it like a feature in that we didn't release any episodes before we edited the episodes. But we didn't shoot it all in one you know, like, period, the way that we shot Summit, where it was on location for two weeks. We shot that on weekends over two months because we, we were working around the work schedules of all the other actors. They were also, um, like, a little bit more up-and-coming. Like, a couple of them are on shows now, and so, like, they had much bigger roles. And so we were, and the crew, like, everyone had day jobs, and so we were kind of like, this is an effective way to... Not make people sacrifice their paying jobs for these lower-paying gigs that we're offering or no-paying gigs um, if we shoot on weekends because, like I, at the time ha- working, you know, full-time or on the verge of working full-time. Um, Knew that like I have my weekends off, and so does Kelsey. She works for a a non-profit in mental health, and so like Mm. she works nine to five during the week. And so that was something that we implemented in A Donkey*. It was like we're not going to ask people to sacrifice these higher-paying gigs. We are going to pay everyone, but we're not going to pay them like livable day rates. Like let's be real, on a twenty grand budget, that's not going to happen. We have an ensemble of nine characters, Mm. and you know like at least a ten-person crew. and 12 shooting days, so, like, that's not gonna happen on 20 grand, so, that was it, it was, like, okay, we shoot Friday through Sunday, um, we can make the most out of our time, and not, people won't have to sacrifice anything, so that was sort of something we did, um, I, I learned a lot about just, like, how to get the most out of your days, and so, from shooting other shorts, and, like, learning along the way i for for one thing now i was using a lot of the same crew um but we had we were all fresh working together on summit we now like were a well-oiled machine on about a donkey because we knew how each other worked. we knew like how long it would take for certain things we just knew you know what made sense um but but also just there were a lot of things we did like we use a lot of natural light. So there are a couple night scenes in about a donkey, but a lot of the scenes that were supposed to be at night, we changed the day so that we could get the most out of our mm. natural light. We, um, I, I went in like knowing, you know, okay, I need to change these locations so that, we only need this actor in this one location so we can knock them out in a day or two instead of, like, all over the place and, you know, trying to do company moves and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And so there was just, like, a lot of little things I implemented yeah, that's great along the way. Just
0: to um, ensure it gets done right. in the most timely manner.
1: And then, but a lot of it was the same in that it was a lot of, like, knocking on doors. Like, every single location was free. Um,
0: I was going to ask, what did what was the, the, was the budget primarily for... Crew and actors fees.
1: Yeah, it was it was, it was that free, and production insurance. <laughs> no, and <laughs> yeah, insurance. like yeah. that was it. Um, that's where the twenty grand went. We did rent some gear, but we got like we got great um, deals because of all the renting that we had done over the years for so many projects. And also, I pretty regularly loan out my own equipment to people. Like I have a lighting kit and I have some other stuff, and so a monitor. And so I was able to call in favors for, to people for their gear. Um, I grew up on Long Island. So like the benefit of not being on location upstate, I had a lot of extended family that I could call on. And so, you know, every house that we shot in was some relative's house. And, you know, we never had to rent a car because I had family, extended family who could give us cars. And Matt, my AD also grew up on Long Island. So like he used his brother's car and Mm -hmm. Um, so we, we, we had a lot of favors in that regard. My mom did all the cooking, you know, and so like the money we raised went towards the ingredients, but like she, she volunteers her time. Um, the donkey even, uh, yeah. So we, we found the donkey through, um, donkey sanctuary upstate called, uh, donkey park. They were in a New York times article about how they were using donkeys as like therapy animals Mm. for children with developmental issues and for the elderly. And so we were like this is perfect. This is exactly like some of the stuff we're tackling in our movie um, that we really want that I think will resonate with them. And so Kelsey reached out um, and they were really into the script and they liked that that there was a donkey in our movie because it's not common and they feel like donkeys are sort of, you know, overshadowed by horses. (laughs) And so so, uh, they agreed to essentially volunteer their donkey, whose name is Cinnamon, um, and Mm. her mom, Susie, because donkeys are companion animals, so you can't separate them. So they volunteered to bring them to Long Island, to my mom's backyard. Uh, And the owners, Steve and Larry, were on set as handlers for the three days that the donkeys were there. Um, And they didn't charge us anything. Like, you know, they, they were just really into what we were doing. And they understood that we didn't really have a budget to hay um Mm -hmm. you know we we like my my stepdad built a shed for the donkeys in the backyard and like we supplied a lot of the stuff that they needed from food and and, you know hay and stuff but for the most part like it was all just them being really kind people showing up for our movie
0: how'd your mom feel about donkeys being in the backyard
1: (laughs) oh she loved it i mean she um it's funny because it wasn't actually their house they were renting it Mm -hmm. um and i had gotten like the owner to sign an agreement, but he definitely, like, didn't know that there would be, like, donkeys in his backyard. Uh, and so, thankfully, he never stopped by in those three
0: days. Yeah. Hopefully.
1: <laughs> he was, like, a, he, he never really came by. And so that was, and I don't know that he would have been upset. Just, like, I think you have to have a permit to have, like, donkeys on your property. Sure. And, yeah, and so, like, that was something that we didn't necessarily do. But even, like, the local authorities were, like, excited, you know, because people were coming by, with, um, apples to give them like neighbors were very into it because my That's mom cool. warned everyone in the neighborhood, like there there was going to be braying because they bray at night. Like there's no way that you can, you know, not hear the donkey. Mm-hmm. Thankfully she lives, um, sort of out on Long Island where there are a lot of farm animals. Like there, oh. she has a neighbor who has chickens. And so it wasn't like so unusual for them, I guess. Um, but yeah, it was, a. It was funny. my mom has a cat who was like not happy about there being donkeys in the backyard. She was pretty scared of them, and she would just like sit in the window and just give them angry eyes. <laughs> um, but for the most part, people liked the donkeys, and they ate all of the grass, though that's something we didn't realize they would do. Like my mom had a nice green, green backyard, and by the end of it, they had just eaten everything. Yeah.
0: Wow. <laughs> So um you shot for 12 days? Mm-hmm, yeah. And um following the shoot, um how how about how long did it take for post um altogether?
1: Altogether we were done in 9 months. Um That's great. Yeah, we similar though like the sound took a long time because uh, working on it around higher paying jobs um and it was really one person doing it ultimately. Um But otherwise It was pretty, the edit, it took a long time because it is, it is a nine character ensemble. And so there were a lot of like ways we shot very much for the edit. That was part of it. And I also wrote a blog post that I can send to you about how we made it on 20 grand. And part of it was like the choices we made to make sure that we didn't have to make decisions on set. Like we shot the entire movie on one lens. Um, that was a choice that we made so like we're never swapping actually that's a lie we have one shot where we swap the lens but otherwise one lens Um, and so that we like built that into the look of the film Very cool. Um, but so there were things like where we didn't give ourselves option in the edit options in the edit where it was like this is the way the scene has to look and we knew that going in but then because there's just so much coverage you know most of the scenes would say most of the scenes have like two or three characters but there are some that have five or six and Mm. so you can spend forever deciding like what reaction am I going to cut to for this line you know like because you have so many and so that was a lot with me and Matt of go like he would do assemblies of the scenes and then I would say like show me that reaction show me that reaction like I want to see what's going to really hit this beat the best and so that took a while because we we could go back and forth forever if we wanted to and and really trying to decide what served the scene most. And then also it's a very talky script. Kelsey is very much like a she's definitely we write we met in a TV writing class. She loves sitcoms. She writes like sort of these ensemble um kind of punchy characters. I love her writing. But on on paper it all it all really worked. And so I tried to we're very collaborative. Like she she respects me as a director, so ultimately I have the final say in on set. Like, she doesn't. I She's there as a script supervisor, which I love. Um, and I can go over to her and say, like, hey, I want to change this line, like, or give me something better for this moment or whatever. But for the most part, she doesn't step on my toes as a director. But I try to be really inclusive of her in the edit. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of it was, like, I don't think this... Scene needs to be this long. I think we're going to cut these lines, but I'm going to shoot them, A, for the actors to get comfortable and, like, find their beats, but also so that Kelsey feels like her script is is respected. (laughs) But then in the edit, we cut out a lot. Like, there were a Uh, lot of... There were a lot of just, like, side tangents that were really funny but ultimately ended up on the cutting room floor. And so it was a 125-page script um, that... Resulted in a 77-minute movie, um, wow. so we cut out quite a bit. I would say
0: sort of Occam's razor, the whole thing. Yeah, yeah. That's great. But it How- wasn't
1: like there were only a couple of scenes we cut out. For the most part, it was just trimming scenes, mm-hmm. um, cutting the fat. Yeah.
0: Okay. Yeah, because I guess at the end of the day, um, it doesn't cost you any additional money if you're just cutting a line here, a line there. Yeah. You know, if if you're cutting whole scenes, like yes, maybe that's something you could do in the lead up to it, but on the day, and
1: we did do some. We did, you know, right before going to production, we went through and definitely cut some scenes that we didn't shoot at all. But for the most part, it we had spent so long revising that script already Mm -hmm. that it was already kind of like every scene served the story. Mm -hmm. Um, But there was one subplot that we ended up just cutting out of the edit completely because it was sort of like... If we were to spin this off into like a TV series, that makes sense, but it's not serving the main story, so let's cut that. So that was why we ended up cutting two scenes. But otherwise, all the scenes remained intact. Um, it's just they were shortened, yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, um, I'm curious, uh, once you... You, you, you know, taking your film, th- this feature from uh, crowdfunding through production through to the edit, and um, how much work uh, as a producer were you doing amidst all that to ensure that it found its audience but retain- or f- kept finding more people for its audience so that it could then be distributed and things like that?
1: So, I mean, a big part of it is is using your crowdfunding supporters. So we now had this base of like 300. Currently we have almost 600 followers on that campaign. Um, And so we definitely, I think we closed it out with uh, like 350. And then over post, we kept getting new followers. And a big part of that was sending updates. Mm -hmm. Um, Something I learned with, with Summit was that I was getting a lot of um, I guess momentum out of sharing really candid lessons I've learned, like candid experiences of making that movie and sort of with other filmmakers, you know, what did I learn? What mistakes did I make? You know, as I said, I put out a whole blog series about every day on set. Um, but then also I would do like before and afters. So, you know, here's our color grade before and after here's our sound mix, here's what it sounded like before, here's what, what it sounds like now. That's cool. And so that kind of stuff was getting me a lot of social media attention and also like my, the crowdfunding supporters would share that stuff more because they were seeing the actual process of filmmaking, mm-hmm. which intrigued them, you know, because for the most part, whether they're filmmakers or not, that's the cool part of contributing to something is knowing how it got there, like watching that process. And so uh, that was something I... Had really learned, and then even when we were shooting Kelsey, my web series, um, we didn't crowdfund that, but we had built a lot of excitement for it by sharing production, like constantly, every day on set we would have behind the scenes, Mm -hmm. Um, and then the way that we got a lot of attention for that was by uh, sending out our trailer, I think it was a month before we were going to release our first episode to BuzzFeed. Cool. Um, and it just was like great timing in that there weren't any lesbian-oriented web series at the time. Um, there weren't any lesbian-oriented web series. But I guess that summer that we shot, Kelsey was like, I remember someone called it the summer of the lesbian web series because I guess a lot of people had that same thought that there weren't any. It's because was zeitgeist. Yeah, exactly. And so we ended up on a list of the eight lesbian web series you need to watch. Cool. And so that got us on the homepage, and our trailer got like 20,000 plays out of that. And that really, it sort of was like great. not something you can really plan on, Definitely. but we had been do, like doing the work. We had been sending out press releases mm-hmm. and really trying to build this audience. And, and we ended up as a, an IndieWire critics pick for the, best comedy web series of 2013 we were on the list with high maintenance because i had been like tweeting at people who wrote about web series on on IndieWire on twitter and so like that's how that happened and so it's about like doing the work you know but anyway from that um i had learned a lot then about like how to create a domino effect with people and like how to build hype and momentum and sort of like get people excited with um Teasers of things. And so that all really informed then the strategy with About a Donkey. And so we were constantly sending updates. Like, I do, re- I, anyone who follows my blog knows that I just like am a recap queen. I do recaps of everything from mm-hmm. like shooting films to every festival I go to, I do a recap. Every indie work screening we do recap. Like I just love doing recaps. I don't know how many people read them, but um, they get shared pretty decently. Uh, but it's anyway, so
0: like a little bit of therapy. Exactly,
1: it totally is for me. That's why I do it. Mm-hmm. But that's what's cool is like, you know, one of the stories I like to tell when I'm doing my crowdfunding workshop. There was a guy who gave 100 bucks to Summit on Kickstarter. He was a total stranger. Um, I looked at his profile and saw that he just gave to a lot of different campaigns. And so I thanked him personally, and I I thanked him on social, and, you know, gave whatever rewards I was giving out, but I didn't stay in touch with him because he was a stranger, but then when I was crowdfunding two years later for two shorts on Seed&Spark, I reached out to him again, at that point he had gotten his copy of Summit, and I was like, I hope you enjoyed the movie, thank you again for contributing, you know, I tried to think of a reason for why he should care about these two shorts. And he replied immediately and was like, Christina, I have to say, I've given to so many campaigns where I never hear from the filmmaker again, or they never make the film, or um, I only hear from them when they want us to promote it on VOD or whatever. But you really made me feel included in making your movie. And mm-hmm. I've really enjoyed watching your journey as a filmmaker. Um, and then he asked, like, what was most important to me on my wish list, because Steven Spark makes you itemize. How you're going to be spending mo- the money, which is really cool. Um, and I said, paying my cast and crew because I didn't pay everyone last time, and I'm determined to pay everyone this time. And within five minutes, he fulfilled the remaining balance, which was a thousand dollars. And so he went from a total stranger who gave me a hundred bucks to still basically a stranger who gave me a thousand dollars, simply because I had made him feel included in making my thing. Yeah. And so it's funny because I think like people think that this sounds like so much work to do, like the re- all these blogs and put out all this stuff, but it is sort of therapeutic like i'm doing it for myself Mm -hmm. ultimately because i don't want all this to be happening in a vacuum i need to process it i need to like celebrate these little things because it is so hard it is so draining and it does sometimes come at great sacrifice or just like disappointment and so putting it out is like my own therapy of processing it and celebrating it and showing that there is actual work behind it and that it's happening and celebrating the other people that participated and made it happen and, and you know like giving them their moments to shine because it's not just me mm-hmm. um, and so that is stuff I would be doing anyway and the fact that it also comes with these like great reward of people, being excited and feeling part of it and wanting to continue to participate and support you and fund your work and watch your work and share your work, like, that's really awesome. Um, and so that's something that I really, like, think about a lot. And so I really try to just build that momentum. And so in terms of About a Donkey, it really was that. Like, every day on set, we had a re- I had a recap with behind the scenes. We would do, like, exclusive stuff for our supporters who gave yeah. us money, but then bits of that out to social to try to sort of build that out more um having donkeys on set was great because like videos and photos of donkeys did pretty well on the internet you know (laughs) animals tend to get you a lot of attention online totally and so it was just a lot of you know sharing the experience and never really just disappearing you know not ghosting on the people totally um and so now we've released a film on VOD and I'm definitely seeing that that The sort of like fruits of that labor where people are spreading the word and telling their friends and family and I did a really big push before we went live um, on VOD to get people to do who had seen the film uh, at festivals or who had gotten early copies as supporters to like leave us IMDB reviews and I was like if you hated it like you can give us one star like I just want you to review it because that'll give us like a little bit of a boost online and, yeah. and it'll, and it'll give me something to share to show like, Hey, here's someone's opinion of it. Thankfully, nobody hated it. At least not <laughs> anyone who has public, rated like, publicly it. rated it. But, um,
0: <clears throat> but even if everybody rated it one star, at least people would be like, Oh <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it exists. Right. It's
1: there. Um, and honestly I can tell you like on Amazon prime, I get these terrible, really, really sexist reviews, for summit um that are really amusing actually at the end of the day all you can do is laugh at them because what else are you gonna do like Mm -hmm. you could cry but you know i'd rather laugh um but i'm like hey you know one of my favorite reviews actually someone said i hated it so much i had to watch it again just to just to like know that i hated it that much something (laughs) like that and i was like I love you. You watched my movie twice. I made money off of you yeah. twice. And so the, all these people that leave these hateful reviews on on Amazon Prime, and thankfully there are some that are like really lovely, and I don't know who they are because I never pushed it. I will say about Amazon Prime, I released it later than Vimeo On Demand and VHX. So at that point, I was really tired of the movie. I didn't want to talk about it anymore, but I wanted to see if it would be discovered on Amazon, and it was, and... that's something that is really cool about Amazon. I don't know if it, I think maybe it's because it's a horror movie and horror fans will try to watch anything, you know? I don't know if I'll have that same experience with the Battle Donkey, but all of our reviews on there are from people I don't know because I didn't ask anyone to review it. And some people have given us really great reviews, which is cool. cool. Some have been really terrible. Those terrible reviews keep us, showing up in search results Mm -hmm. so I'm like give me one star like please because (laughs) it makes some other horror fan like hate watch it you know Mm -hmm. and that makes me money (laughs) and
0: hate watching I think is like a unique thing in the horror community yeah where like there is something that you know is gonna be even if you think or somebody tells you like this is horrible you should see it Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know what I mean and um and I'm not asserting that that's your film I'm just saying like some people may feel like The only reason they want to watch it is because it could be really bad.
1: Totally. I mean, I, I experienced that myself. Like I'm, I will put on a drama if I've heard great things about it. If it's, you know, won some awards or my friends are really recommending it or I know some actors in it that I'm a fan of or the filmmaker I'm a fan of. I will generally never push play on a drama that I've ne- heard nothing about because mm-hmm. if it's bad, it'll just be bad. It, I will definitely do that with a horror movie because if it's bad, it could also be really fun.
0: And fun and entertaining. Yeah, yeah exactly. Totally. And so, yeah. Um, that's great. I know I, I, this is all that I wanted to hear. Well, um, I just have one more question. Um, what? Uh, there's so many tidbits of advice that you've imparted just through... Explaining your journey in um, crowdfunding through Seed and Spark, through making two features, all these shorts. But if you had any bit of advice that um, either you would impart to um, some, since you're head of education, somebody who is um, the maybe 2008 version of you, or just a an up and coming filmmaker, what uh, what would you say?
1: Uh, you know. There's so much, I guess I would say, but (laughs) Um, for one thing, I think it's important not to focus on other people's paths of success. I think we can get caught up in that and like what success looks like for other people. And I think it's important to definitely look at how other people are approaching their careers and find ways you know if you see that they're making content that's similar to yours definitely see how they're getting it out there but no I don't think there is one right way and that there is one way that will work for everyone you know I can like I talk a lot about my humble upbringings and like my mom was a single mom working multiple jobs and you know I started working at twelve and basically never stopped and and You know, I definitely have lacked privilege in some ways, but then I also I am I have a spouse and like my spouse helps pay my bills and like I can make films and do things I can like constantly roll out content because I'm not struggling on my own in the way a lot of my peers are. And so I sometimes have people like ask me, how do you do it all? Or like, you know, I want to be able to do all the things you do. And it's like, you're not looking at the full context around my life and how I'm able to do all of that. Totally. The same way that I may not be doing that with other people who have more, you know, advantages than I, than I do. and um, and who maybe are where I want, like where I think I want to be, but I don't know, how they've gotten there or the, the sort of circumstances that have allowed them to be there or maybe like the ways in which they're they're not happy with where they are. And so I think it's just like don't look at other people's paths and, and think that there's only one way to success and really think about what it is that you want. Like why? What is your why? What are your goals with what you're making? and And how can you get there and who can help you? And really think about like your, not just your collaborators creatively, but the organizations you can partner with, the, um, the ways that your audience can really partner with you, like who's really craving that. Um, I like thinking about, for instance, I can talk about, about a donkey in our festival run. You know, I know a lot, I made a feature film. A lot of people think, you know, if you don't premiere at a top tier to festival, like you're not gonna have a festival run and there's no point in making your feature or like getting it out there or it's not going to get seen. Mm-hmm. But I didn't submit Sundance. I didn't submit to any top tier festivals. I barely even submitted to any mid tier festivals because at the end of the day, I made a $20,000 feature film that through post cost us $22,500. Basically that was the entire cost of the movie. Um, and we have no names. We have no connections to the like wider industry. Um, so realistically, we wouldn't get into those festivals. But also, when I think about why we made About a Donkey, which I realize like I never even said a synopsis or anything of it, but um, it's an inclusive ensemble comedy about a family that's struggling with various things, and the father decides to bring home a donkey, and it kind of shakes up their lives. Um, and it's sort of a quirky, sweet, inclusive family comedy about hope and acceptance and growth and flawed characters who who find a way to accept each other um, and we in 2016 in particular w- felt motivated to make the movie because the way that the election was looking um, and we felt like there's a lot of felt like we were moving backwards in some way and there's like a lot of hatred just sort of being embraced and our movie felt like a way to build some bridges or at least create some conversations and it's a very LGBTQ inclusive film, but that's not necessarily like at the forefront because it's about a family where some of the characters are queer identifying and some of them are straight. And um, we very much wanted to just like show you a family that looks like a kind of like nuclear white family in America, um, but then show you how that can be really inclusive and how those people can like grow and be really accepting. Um and so my mission with the festival run was like okay, we're not going to get some big distribution deal and be like on billboards and on the homepage of iTunes and like on Netflix as a recommended title. So like we we need to reach real people who don't work in film who would never know about our film otherwise and specifically people who maybe don't seek out inclusive content and who maybe aren't the most accepting of LGBTQ people um, and just like generally diverse identities. And so I made it my mission to look for festivals that are in communities where they get really high local attendance because there's not too much else going on in their cities or Mm -hmm. towns. um, And festivals that... Uh, program like true independent films aren't just like inviting films from the bigger festivals and happen to be in like maybe red you know right leaning areas and so that is the approach that I took with our festival run and so we had a really really lovely successful festival run where we had like sold out screenings of local people who had never heard of our movie and probably Mm. never would, but they decided to come see it because it looked like a fun comedy about a family, and they found themselves hopefully maybe challenged. challenged. Yeah, Yeah, like one of my favorite experiences was um, in Montana, in Polson, Montana, at the Flathead Lake International Cinema Fest, which I had not heard of until I was doing all this research. It's a really lovely festival. Um, Polson was like... I think 67% Trump voting. Uh, So we're screening in this community. We had a a screening that was nearly sold out in a beautiful theater. We had 77 people in that theater. And um, there was a couple behind us, an older couple, a husband and wife. And about 25 minutes into the movie, you find out that through a conversation between the oldest daughter in the film, um, who's about 30, and the uh grandmother that the daughter cecilia she is interested in the grandmother's um nursing aide who is a woman and so like up until that point you didn't actually know that cecilia is a lesbian it's just sort of like through this casual conversation that's how you find out and the couple behind us, the husband, who I think was kind of hard of hearing, the wife was definitely explaining a lot of stuff to him throughout <laughs> the movie. He you was, had
0: your color commentary right yeah, behind you. Yeah, I did,
1: yeah. Um, he was like, what's going on? And she explains it to him, and he was just like, oh, do you want to leave? And she hesitated for a moment and then was like, no, we'll stay. And they watched the whole movie. And so that, I think, is beautiful. Like, maybe they're not, they clearly were uncomfortable with that revelation that there's a lesbian character, multiple lesbian characters in this movie. But they, and they maybe won't change the way they vote, I don't know. But, like, they maybe will be more empathetic because they watched this sweet romance and didn't walk out. And... And so I feel like we planted some seeds and we had multiple yeah we had multiple experiences like that you know we had there's a kiss in the movie between the two women characters towards the end of the movie and um at one screening two women walked out like two separate women walked out at that moment which was disappointing but like they sat through it up until that point and they tried i guess you know I don't know it's interesting and so for me We didn't screen out any like majorly buzzy festivals, but we've gotten like really wonderful local reviews and we've gotten we have had great conversations. It's been really rewarding for us. And we feel like it gave our movie a bigger purpose, you know, and and gave us like a sense of purpose in making it beyond that. And so I think that. And that's not anything I got from anyone else. If I talked to anyone who had made a feature, they would tell me, like, submit to all of the festivals and try and get the best premiere you possibly can and then, like, hope to work your way down and get a distribution deal. And, and I'm self-distributing. I can do a whole, like, talk on why I don't think distribution deals generally are worth taking. But that's just, like, that's just something. So I think if you really think about your own work and your own goals and <laughs> and try and find innovative ways of achieving those goals and don't compare yourself to other people and what their version of success is or what the industry tells you is success.
0: I love that. I, I, still, I want to pick your brain now about distribution. <laughs> Sh- Do you okay, have time y- for one yeah, more question? Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, tell me, uh, elaborate a little bit on what you were just talking about, um, your personal proclivity for self-distribution rather than going with a distribution company.
1: Sure. So I think distribution is so um, complicated right now because it's evolving. You know, it's in this state. Uh, it's been in this state for a while. Uh, at Seed&Spark, as the head of education, one of the first things that I did when I moved into that role with Emily Bass, our CEO, like through conversations with her, we we really wanted to make a distribution workshop. So I'm now teaching that festivals and it's something i'm really trying to get programmed because i think filmmakers don't understand it at all and so in all of december of 2018 i spoke to experts that emily got me in touch with who work in different um areas of distribution and i just tried to accumulate as much knowledge as i possibly could and built this workshop that is like where distribution traditionally has been where it sort of currently is in this mid-state and where it could be going and kind of the different approaches. And so I do recommend like check out our events page on Seed&Spark and see when we'll be teaching it near you because it's worth attending. Um, But for me, I found, you know, anyone I've ever spoken to that has gotten a distribution deal, so often there's just no transparency and most of them regret it. And often because distributors take on all these different titles they kind of see what lands like initially and then that's what they keep promoting and they sort of shelve the other titles or or there's generally the initial amount that they pay you up front is the only amount of money you're ever going to see mm-hmm. because they will forever claim expenses against what is supposed to be your percentage of the revenue mm-hmm. Um, and so if you're getting a distribution deal that has, like, a nice chunk up front, it might be worth it. But I, from anyone I've ever spoken to, that's really not the case. More, more often than not, they're not offering you anything up front. They're just offering maybe to, like, cover any sort of, like, deliverable deliverables you have to do. Or, like, if you have to do a remix of your sound or something like that, they'll cover that. But then they're eventually going to recoup that from your... Um, your share and so honestly just generally I found them to not be I got a distribution offer for summit way back when and they were offering they were offering me five grand I think and then it was going to be like an 80 20 split um and I was almost on the verge of signing it eventually didn't and then I'm so glad that I didn't because like I've made like 15 grand just on my own from self distributing it. And that, and I I spoke to someone who signed with them pretty recently. And she was like, Oh yeah, we signed with them for seven years It was the worst decision we ever made. We never saw a dime. Like they didn't even offer them the upfront 5k. And now they're just getting their movie back and putting it on Amazon themselves. But for seven years, they couldn't touch their own movie. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think, you know, there are definitely some worth taking, but In this independent space i think if you're making anything for under 250k like it's not worth taking a deal you're better off because you have control ultimately your ability to have direct access to your audience is extremely important um and your distributor removes that direct access and you have no idea who is who who the marketing is resonating with most because you're not tracking that yourself they're doing all that and they're not sharing any of that with you Mm -hmm. and I think something I'm really learning I think like people data transparency I think is really important and people don't really understand why but I but when I think about my own campaigns and like who supported summit and then who watched summit and where they are geographically and what else they're watching and how they identify that tells me who my audience is and who I can target For getting my next horror film seen, you know, or even getting my next film funded, even if it's not a horror film, because I have these like real specific data points about who to target and how to reach them and where they are and how they're watching and, you know, what platform they choose and all of these really interesting things that you don't get if you have this middle person. Who's keeping all that from you? Mm -hmm. And so I just, you know, when it comes to distribution, again, like don't think about what successful looks like. I've spoken to so many feature filmmakers who were like, I took the deal because I wanted to say I got distribution Mm -hmm. because that looks successful to my funders or to my crowdfunding supporters or to just like my cast and crew. But it may actually be very harmful. And I think self-distribution doesn't have to be failure. Like it could be... Your approach to success, and honestly, in teaching this um, this distribution workshop, something Emily has sort of coined is that all distribution is self distribution because even if you get a deal, there's still so much work that you have to do in getting that deal, and then even if they get you on these platforms or you know out into the world, get you a theatrical run, you're still doing so much of the marketing yourself and mm. so much of the push yourself that it's still sort of the same amount of work anyway you just have no control and no and you're splitting the profits. And so I think yeah it's 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 very complicated but really really do your research when it comes to distribution. Talk to other filmmakers who have signed with them. Most of them have like non-disclosure agreements so they can't speak publicly but they probably will talk to you privately. Mm-hmm. Um, and really try to find the filmmakers who aren't on the distributors list of like success stories, find the other filmmakers and talk to them and ask them like, you know, how open were were they with you? Did they negotiate with you on certain contracts? Like, you know, points. Um, Have you seen charges for expenses like five years into your contract? Are they still just like claiming expenses against what should be your share? Mm -hmm. Have you seen anything? And and really know what your goals are again. Like if your goal is not to make money, because it's hard. It's hard to make money in distribution, even in self-distribution. Um, maybe your goal is just to get it seen. That doesn't mean that any distributor is going to get your film seen. Like, some of them may still just shelve it or not really do much work to get it out there. Mm-hmm. So if you think like, oh, well, I'm trading off money, what I could make directly myself for the promotional support of this distributor, that may not actually be the case because they may not really push it especially if they have tons of other titles with bigger names in them that they're pushing. Um, so just like just really do your homework. Mm-hmm. It always comes Don't down to that. Don't assume yeah.
0: yeah. I love that. Well, thank you for, for lending um, your time to us. No uh, problem. If, if people want to go to follow you or Congested Cat, where can they go?
1: Um, if you go to congestedcat.com or christinareya.com, that links to all of our social channels and um, my personal channels and really uh, congested cat tends to focus more on the work and indie works the monthly screening series we run um, my personal site will tell you where i'll be speaking next so if you want to attend any of my workshops and also just my like own personal um like writing and stuff like that that isn't necessarily yet a production for congested cat to be promoting
0: great well thank you again Christina. it was great talking to you
1: thank you you too
0: Hey, guys, just want to remind you that not only can you find the Full Frame podcast on HMD's website, www.hmdfilms.com, but you can find us on Facebook and, most importantly, you can find us on iTunes, where we would really like if you could leave a review and subscribe. Thanks. Have a great week.